we know how to grow food well. You know, there are Afro-Indigenous and Turtle Island Indigenous practices that make the land better every year and provide really high yields of healthy food. And so it's not a dichotomy between getting what we need and providing space for the earth to get what she needs. How has colonialism impacted soil health around the world and consequently the welfare of the people who live on these lands? How has the oppression of Black and Indigenous people of color in the United States affected farmland ownership and continued institutionalized injustice? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To join our Green Dreamer network and support the show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a patron. For now, to our conversation with Leah Penniman, an educator, farmer, the author of Farming While Black, and food justice activist who currently serves as founding co-executive director of Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York, a people of color-led project that works to dismantle racism in our food system. Multiple of our past guests have actually named Leah as somebody who inspires them that we should follow, so I'm extremely honored to have been able to have this conversation and to be graced by her passion and wisdom. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I have been close to nature for almost as long as I can remember, and part of that was out of necessity. My siblings and I were some of the only brown children in our predominantly white town, and children were cruel to us, to say the least. So we spent almost all of our time just with one another in the forest where the pine trees were kind and the soil was soft. And so I became an environmental advocate and a friend of the earth from from being a small child. So I didn't find farming until I was a teenager. Mm. And that is going to be my next question is what led you to becoming a farmer and then seeing this as a powerful way to be able to support sustainability and social justice? Well, like so many teens, I needed a summer job to start saving money for college and other necessities. And I picked up a flyer at church for a job at the Food Project in Boston, which is an urban and suburban project that builds leadership in diverse young people, as well as provides fresh food for low-income communities. And it was just on time for me. It was perfectly right for me. You know, from that moment when I put a seed in the ground and harvested my first carrot and brought it to our farmer's market and to the soup kitchens that we served, I was just enthralled by the elegant simplicity and pure goodness of feeding the community in a way that also honors the earth and became hooked on farming. That was now well over 20 years ago. Mm. And how do you see farming as a way to support environmental justice and social justice? Well, that is a huge question. That is a thesis onto itself. But I will say that farming and food touch all aspects of our lives. And I'm particularly interested in racial justice in the food system and everything from who owns the land and and that type of disparity and wealth to how farm workers are treated to who gets access to good, fresh, healthy food is all bound up with race and class and systems of oppression. And so we can use food as this entry point to 
to understanding the way that white supremacy and capitalism impact all the systems that we experience. Mm, There's definitely a lot to this. And I want to go over a little history in setting up our conversation, because especially when it has to do with fighting for environmental justice and racial justice in the food system, I think it's really important to understand the context of how things came to be. And from your book on page 72, your book Farming While Black, you give an example of how Haitian farmers are restoring their degraded soils. And it starts by saying Haiti's soil was stolen by the Spanish who cut down the trees for sugar sugarcane plantations, and then by the French who continued the deforestation to make way for coffee, indigo, and tobacco, end quote. And this is just one example, but it's a common story in terms of how, even in our post-colonialism world today, people marginalized from that were left literally with impoverished and desertified lands and still today are dealing with the aftermath of that exploitation. Can you talk a little bit more about this and how colonialism impacted soil health around the world and how soil health then relates to the welfare of people who live there? That's such a deep question. You know, I was recently reading a study that talked about how within one generation of colonizers taking the plow to the plains in the Midwest, half of the soil carbon was released into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And for those who aren't soil scientists, you might be shrugging and wondering why that matters. Soil carbon is the currency of life in the soil. It's the food for the organisms and it provides the fertility and the tilth and all the benefits that soil has for producing food. And when it's released from the soil, it goes into the atmosphere where it drives anthropogenic climate change. So to lose half of our carbon in one generation is, is astounding and devastating and our work as black indigenous people of color farmers is to re-indigenize the soil and re-indigenize our lives in part by calling that carbon back in because we really can't have a healthy food system or healthy ecology without restoring the health of the soil. So do you think part of the issue was that the colonizers didn't entirely understand responsible and sustainable land stewardship and then introduce these extractive methods that focused on yield as the top priority? I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, white supremacist settler colonialism is all about short-term gain, maximizing profit, and and leaves a wake of destruction in terms of the attempted genocide of indigenous people, the enslavement of African people, and then neo-enslavement as far as sharecropping. And that same ethos is applied to the earth. You know, how can we extract as much as possible in as short a time to maximize profits without thinking about those long-term impacts or having an ethical frame? Mm. Wendell Berry writes really brilliantly about about this. So there's certainly white thinkers who have, have done some profound philosophical contributions to that thinking. And yeah, the end result is that, you know, once the soil is depleted, folks just move on or they use chemical fertilizers and pesticides to keep driving the soil to do more beyond its capacity. And and we know how to grow food well. You know, there are Afro-Indigenous and Turtle Island Indigenous practices that make the land better every year and provide really high yields of healthy food. And so it's not a dichotomy between getting what we need and providing space for the earth to get what she needs. Mm. And it sounds like also then that the industrialized and extractive methods that we still have today, that is dominant, at least in in developed countries, these may very much have roots from the colonial mindset of extraction. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's this one story I like to tell that 
goes back to my time living in Ghana, West Africa in my early 20s. And my mentors were the elder women who are called the queen mothers in Manya Krobo of Ghana. And they asked me sincerely, you know, is it true that in the United States, a farmer will put a seed into the ground and they will not pray over it or sing or dance or offer libation or even say thank you to the earth and then Mm -hmm. expect the seed to grow. And of course, that's that is the case. And they said, that's why you're all sick. You know, you're all sick because you see the earth as this material thing from which you can extract without limit and not the living, breathing orisha that she is deserving of reciprocity, respect and consent. So I think there's a spiritual and ethical dimension to the way that we interact with the soil and the land as well. And I know that you've worked with farmers from around the world who are currently in the process of restoring their lands from their lands having been degraded. Can you give us a picture of what that looks like and your experience in doing this work? Sure. So I've been really blessed to be welcomed back to my maternal ancestral homelands of Haiti in the Caribbean. And the farmers there have a saying that the bones of Haiti are showing And by that, they mean the bedrock that's literally sticking out from the mountainsides because of the legacy of deforestation, the extraction of the trees by the Spanish and then the French. And I'll add that the French actually demanded what they called reparations for the freedom of their property. They consider the Haitian enslaved Haitians as their property. So after freedom demanded these reparations, which were paid for through deforestation. So the the soil is just washed into the ocean. And the farmers there have been using an ancestral crop called vetiver, which is a really tenacious grass that can stabilize a hillside and allow for deep-rooted plants like trees to, to be planted behind the walls of vetiver and eventually to rebuild the soil. And so over the past seven years, that's a project that I've been working on outside of Laogon, Haiti, planting thousands of trees in these vetiver hillsides. So do you feel like there is hope? So even though we're today and across the world, we're faced with a lot of lands that are being desertified, you have seen the possibility of restoration and being able to regenerate healthy ecosystems, even in places that have been impoverished. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and I I recently learned that that very popular aerial photograph that shows the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic with the Dominican Republic lush and green and Haiti as all barren is actually misleading because Haitian farmers have managed to reforest 30% of the land area when at one time almost all of it was deforested. So there is forward movement, but the poverty pimping and all of that has influenced the way that we look at at the truth of what's on the ground. But we are we are making strides, you know, in the Sahel Desert, there's a movement of farmers using these zai pits or tasa, it's also called, in order to reforest and create this landscape of, of green where there once was just sand and dryness. So we have the solutions and we're on our way. Mm. And does it take a lot of financial investments in order to restore landscapes? Yeah, I mean, it certainly does take some capital to do things uh, the way that our economy is structured, but it's not inordinate. I mean, people are very excited to come together and do the work. You know, we have a tradition in our communities called Combit or Dokpwe, which is the collective work party. So there is an expectation of volunteerism in traditional African society where we all get together, you know, once a week or once a month and do communal labor projects. And so that was a huge asset in our reforestation. But it does take resource, you know, to build a nursery in order to start tree seedlings, to get the compost and the water, to pay coordinators and so forth. So it does take capital, but it's not an inordinate amount that would prevent that type of work. 
So it sounds like for people who inherited land that has been desertified, of course, they have a natural incentive to want to restore that land. But how would we frame this for farmers today who go by the industrialized extractive methods, who are still making a lot of money just from having high yields? How can we incentivize these farmers who are degrading their soils, but they may just not see it, but they're in the process of desertifying their lands? It's a great question. And I think there are very few farmers who are making a lot of money doing any kind of farming. You know, I recently read that it's well over 95% of small farmers who rely on outside income. So it's not a lucrative field and it's not designed to be because our society has really disrespected the industry of farming and the work of, of creating food and relegated that to those that are considered more disposable in our society, people of color, folks without a lot of resource and so forth. So I don't want to blame the farmer. I think that we have to have a societal shift. For example, in Costa Rica, they have incentives where they actually pay farmers for providing ecological services. Mm -hmm. So if a farmer does something that serves the pollinator population or protects a watershed or sequesters carbon or prevents erosion, there are payments for that, which is the opposite of what we have right now in the States. In the States, you're actually paid in the form of subsidies and credit and crop allotments for doing unsustainable practices. And so we have to look at it from a society level scale and and fix up the farm bill. But I think even on an individual level, it is important to disseminate information amongst farmers about specific methods you can use like intercropping and shelter belts that restore the soil and don't negatively impact your bottom line in the short term. And these are also practices that at the same time can improve the health of our farmers as well. So that's another direct incentive. That's really true. Yeah, we are disproportionately impacted as farmers by cancers because of exposure to pesticides and also to mental illness because of the toll that it takes to do this really difficult work without the honor and the financial reward that it deserves. And so using some of these uplifting ancestral restorative practices can help us with our physical and mental health. So today you're committed to ending racism and injustice in our food system by increasing farmland stewardship by people of color. Just to give us a little bit of a backdrop on this, how has the oppression of African-Americans impacted farmland ownership and stewardship in the United States? Well, as folks probably know, one of the original sins of the United States was the attempted genocide and theft of the continent from indigenous people. And that was just the first land theft, which is ongoing. There was until the mid 1900s laws in some states against people of color owning land at all. And when black folks did manage to accumulate and acquire through their own work and purchasing about 15 million acres of land by 1910, almost all of that was lost in the succeeding generations through a combination of factors. One was outright racist violence. Owning land was considered uppity and disruptive to the white supremacist status quo. And so the KKK and the White Citizens Council would literally lynch landowners, burn houses, burn crosses, drive people off of their land. And a lot of land was lost in this way. About 4,000 families were impacted by this. Additionally, the federal government itself, namely the USDA, discriminated against black farmers in giving out loans and technical assistance and resources. So the white farmers had an advantage and eventually black farmers were outcompeted and had to leave their lands behind. And so now only about, as I mentioned, you know, 1% of the farmland is controlled by black farmers today, which is an abysmally sad percentage, but not because black farmers voluntarily left their land, really because they were 
driven off by institutional racism. What key wisdom and knowledge on sustainable agriculture do you think may have been marginalized as a consequence of the marginalization of Black and Indigenous people of color? Yeah, well, something that was really stark to me as a young farmer committed to organic and sustainable agriculture, I went to all the conferences, I read all the books I could get my hands on, and I didn't see anyone who looked like me. It was white men presenting as if they had created sustainable agriculture, and that was my assumption. And it was through running Soul Fire Farm, the training programs that we offer for black and brown farmers and writing the book that I learned that this was just a real misrepresentation of history. When in fact, everything from vermicomposting, which is worm composting, to raised beds, the CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, cover crops, pick your own, you know, all of these technologies came out of the black agrarian tradition and, and many, many more. And so it was important for me to learn that to reclaim my place as a brown farmer and also to really remind the sustainable farming world that we owe a lot of the practices that we that we implement to the black agrarian tradition. And for those who are not familiar with your work, can you share a little bit about your inspirations behind starting Soul Fire Farm and the work that you do today to support environmental justice through farming? Sure. So Soul Fire Farm is a community farm in the cold, snowy mountains of Grafton, New York, outside of Albany. We are a team of nine people who run three main programs, all with the end goal of promoting food justice and ending racism in the food system. So we were on 80 acres and we run about a five acre vegetable, fruit, herb and poultry farm that provides doorstep deliveries of food to mostly low income folks in the surrounding metropolitan areas. And then we run training programs for aspiring black and brown farmers and food justice activists that reach several thousand people every year. And then finally, we are organizers. So we're working regionally and nationally on projects that change the systemic racism in the food system, everything from land banks and land trusts to policy organizing. So that's Soul Fire Farm in a nutshell. I learned from you earlier that, of course, a lot of our injustices really stem from the system itself. So these are very deep rooted issues. What are our current biggest roadblocks for African heritage people to have more agency and equity in our food system? Mm. That's such a good question. I mean, for Black folks to have more agency in the food system, I think access to land is definitely a big one. As I mentioned, you know, almost all the land right now in rural spaces is controlled by white people. In the last census, it was 98% white controlled, which is higher than ever. And so without land, obviously, we can't farm and we can't have autonomy and dignity and the means of production. So that's huge. But then also access to capital and training and the other things that support a farmer in getting started and sustaining their operation are crucial. And the good news is that there's a, a lot of wonderful Black-led projects all around the nation working on the, those things that we can plug into. So groups like the National Black Food and Justice Alliance or SAFON, which is the Southeastern African American Farmers Organic Network, are doing this work and really needing the resources and support to make sure that farmers get the leg up that we need. Do you think part of the challenge, especially for young people, is that when people think about opportunities of empowerment and economic mobility in this modern world, people think about things like 
going into cities where the cost of living is much higher for opportunities or getting expensive educational degrees that also sets people back financially or maybe going to work for large corporations for that security when in fact sometimes working for these large corporations means supporting the current unjust system to continue. So what are your thoughts on how our societal values and views on what is valuable? How may this be a challenge in encouraging people to reclaim their power and agency through things like farming and taking care of land? Oh, it's so tricky. You know, there's lots of layers to what keeps us away from farming. You know, certainly there's the external barriers that I mentioned in terms of land and capital and access, but also internally, as you mentioned, there's roadblocks. You know, there's no way that you can go through 250 years of slavery as a people followed by sharecropping and convict leasing and violent expulsion from land and not carry trauma. So our generations past and our current generation carry this trauma where we recognize that the land was the scene of the crime and sometimes confuse that land with the oppressor itself Mm. and run as far away as we can from like stooping and sweat and dirt and bugs because we imagine that would revert us to bondage when in fact the land was not the criminal the land was a source of sustenance for us and so there is a reclamation of the dignity in it as well as the the practicality you know right now farming is probably not the top choice of a way to make a living most farmers need to have a side hustle whether that's agritourism or some value add product or you know educational programming so you know most of us who are into farming have some idealism around it where we're trying to be of service to a greater community ideal in addition to making sure that we provide for our families and our basic needs. Mm. So maybe the larger issue is also that in our economy, we're not giving nature the value that it actually has. So the people doing the most important work, taking care of our lands, aren't making sufficient enough to be able to support their financial freedom or to be able to attract a lot of people to want to apply their talents and skills and knowledge into caring for our lands. Exactly. I really think that we need to shift our balance sheet because right now we have all these externalities. So these large corporations aren't actually paying for the impact that they have on human health or the environment. Those are borne by the public. And if we were to shift the way our economic system works, then farming would be paid what it deserves and it would become a more attractive field. So it's both about convincing people, so to speak, that it's worthy, but it's also about being accountable as a society to what we value and how we value it. So how do you think we can work with that going forward? So you mentioned that there's this trauma that we're still healing from, as well as this economic incentive that's needed to encourage more people to step in this direction. So how can we begin to work towards these things? Yeah, I mean, we already are. The great news is even though it's challenging, there's a clamor. We are right now in the returning generation of Black farmers. We have a wait list of two to three years for our training programs at Soulfire. There are sites popping up around the country doing similar work. So it's happening. And I think that because we are the kind of folks who make cobbler out of rotten peaches and make quilts out of scraps, you know, we can, we can figure it out. We're really good at the hustle. And at the same time, we're organizing on a larger scale to change the way the system works. And to be specific about that, over 500 black and brown farmers chimed in to create a policy platform that folks can check out on our website on soulfirefarm.org slash take action. And there's, you know, policies that we're working on, as well as actions we can take in our own communities to make the food system work better for black farmers. And there's 
you know, there's something for everyone there. Mm. And if we're not farmers, is there anything we can do as individuals to support this and to help build more equitable food systems? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, the action steps were made for non-farmers. And so there's everything from, you know, calling up your congressperson and telling them to support the Fairness for Farm Workers Act to suggestions about, you know, lists of black farmers that you can buy from in order to support their enterprise and ideas about how you can volunteer and pitch in. So we have well over 100 suggestions of things that people can do on our action steps. Amazing. We'll be sure to link to this in our show notes so our listener can check it out. Um, And I'd love to hear overall, what's been your personal biggest challenge in doing this work? Mm. You know, it's funny. It's always the small things or the apparently small things that are the biggest challenge. Because we're rural and because of the intensity of our work, we live with, we work with, we play with the same people who are holding the project. And we have to take great care of our relationships. You know, Mm. my partner, Joan and I, my children, my coworkers need to have systems in place for staying close to each other, being accountable and transforming conflict. And that has been the biggest learning curve and the biggest challenge. And I think that we're not alone. You know, I've, I've had the blessing as the author of Farming While Black to travel all around the country and visit projects like ours. And I would say by and large, the challenges that confront us most starkly are those about our internal relationships and our organizational relationships. And so I'm hoping that we can all kind of skill up in that arena of, of healing between us. Is there like one light bulb moment that you've had going through these challenges or something that you've changed your mind about through this? I mean, I have a lot of hope about it. I think that as a person who's pretty shy and conflict averse, I've tended to just get quiet if I feel discomfort or conflict or run away. And because that's not really an option in this work, if we want it to move forward, I've had to learn to set limits, to ask for what I need, to take responsibility for my feelings, to listen more deeply, to like lean into discomfort. And it works. I mean, that's the amazing thing. I I guess my light bulb would be that if you use really thoughtful conflict transformation processes and and we have some step-by-step guides within our organization that we that we use, you really can move through hard spots and come out on the other side stronger. And so that gives me a lot of hope, not just for our internal work, but by extension for the world, because we yeah. need to we need to figure out how to how to collaborate with each other. Well, you've been drawing upon messages from your book, Farming While Black, throughout this entire conversation, and there's a lot more we have to learn. But overall, what is the biggest message that you'd like to get out there through Soulfire Farm and also your book? Oh, wow. Well, I'll say two. I think for Black and brown farmers and aspiring farmers, the biggest message of the book is you belong and there's a place for you on the land and there's a place for you as a leader in the food system. It's really your inherent and ancestral rights. And so the book lays out, you know, the noble history of black agrarianism and provides this how-to guide for getting started as a small farmer. Everything from how you get land to how you pick out seed and what kind of tools you need and so forth. So that's the message for our folks. I think the the message for everyone, though, is that It's all of our responsibility as people who eat food, as people who live on lands to pay attention to equity in the food system, because if we don't act, then we're complicit and we're supporting the status quo, which is really unfair to farm workers and unfair to the earth. So it would be, you know, the message is step up, you know, see what you can do to take action to heal the food system and know that that you, too, are standing on a legacy of fierce freedom fighters who have centered the earth. Well, thank you so much for sharing this and for sharing your expertise with us. We would, of course, love to keep following your work and supporting you online. So what is next for you and where can we find your work online? Well, 
things are thawing here on the land. So next for us is to plant thousands and thousands and thousands of seeds in the ground so that we can provide that food to our community and use this space as a teaching lab for the farmers who will be coming this summer. And this summer we're doing a lot more programming in Spanish so that we make sure our work is accessible to farm workers as well as doing deeper collaboration with the indigenous community. So that's what's next. And folks can follow our work as well as the book tour stops by visiting soulfirefarm.org or following us on social media. Our handles are soulfirefarm and farmingwellblack. It's so easy to feel lost, unmotivated, or like we're alone in this journey working towards a more just and sustainable world, which is why I created our Green Dreamer Network to connect our past guests as well as our most passionate listener patrons supporting the show. On the inside, we're sharing positive sustainability news, green ideas and opportunities, thoughts on topics discussed on the show and beyond, and more. In addition to this, for our Green Leader patrons, I'm also hosting live monthly masterminds. So if you're working on a passion project in sustainability and are eager to elevate your reach and impact, this was created for you. To support our work, join the network and maybe our masterminds as well. You can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. I hope to see you on the inside of the network, but for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? Ooh. So I am ashamed to say that I don't follow much of anything because I just work too many hours. So I follow the sunshine and the sky. I love that. That's the best answer. (laughs) What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Your ancestors braided seeds in their hair before boarding transatlantic slave ships, believing against odds that you would exist. So don't give up on your descendants. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I run every morning. What's one thing you're working on to live more sustainably? Well, since recycling is about to die, we are trying to up our composting game to include all kinds of paper and cardboard. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Oh, this up and coming generation finds it obvious that we have to take care of the sacred earth. They don't give it a second thought. So that gives me hope. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? history of being in a consensual and respectful and mutually sustaining relationship with the earth is so much longer and deeper than our history of exploiting the earth. And so all we have to do is catch up to our ancestors and build from there. Let's start by reconnecting with our ancestry and learning from that native, deep-rooted wisdom. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can join our Green Dreamer network by becoming a patron of the show at greendreamer.com slash support. You can find the full show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 134 for episode 134. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember... Now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.